thanks for coming to my class. I always wonder, will there be two people there? Two makes a legitimate class. So, appreciate some of you volunteering. Done. Some of you need to sit on the front row doing it. All right, I want to read uh, a prayer from Thomas Akempis that seems like a terrible prayer to read at the beginning of a time when I'm going to talk for almost an hour. Oh God, my truth, make me one with you in eternal love. Often I become weary with reading and hearing many things. Welcome to the lecture. <laughs> Often I become weary with reading and hearing many things. You are all I want and desire. Let all teachers be mute, and creation keep silence before you. Speak to me, you and you alone. What do you think about that? There, there's a... Um, Part of that prayer that really resonates with me, and ironically, especially at a thing like this, where by Thursday at lunch, you've heard so much that you just kind of feel like you need to pull over and puke some of it out, you know? Um, and you just want people and yourself and the authors and the world to be silent so you could just hear from God alone. So, in one sense, that's my prayer for you. That I'm painfully aware that I'm about to do most or all of the talking for a short period of time, and I don't know anything more than you know. Um, I just agreed to teach a class so I can have an excuse to come to Pepperdine. Um, I'm aware of that and would much rather you hear from the Lord in some way in this hour or in your week here other hand human beings are often the ways that we hear from God and we don't hear from God usually outside of community and in conversation and dialogue ongoing painful messy noisy dialogue right so that's my excuse for talking for an hour <laughs> Uh, okay, remind me if, if I forget to come back to this at the very end. All right, this is Mystic Prayers. It's one of my favorite little books. Okay, so um, how many of you were in this class last year? Anybody? A couple of people. Uh, this is part two. It's a year-long class. <laughs> uh, but the only thing is, I can't remember what I said last year, so maybe it's part one redone. I don't know. Uh, I want to talk about something. This is, uh, I've got several people from Campus Church here. One of them is Caleb Banner. He's our executive minister. And he and I have been partnering and kind of on this journey um, that involves a lot of things. And what we're about to talk about is one of them. And I've come to believe it's super important. Um, so just want to talk about it uh, with you a little bit today. Um, so the movie Monsters, Inc. You know that movie? Uh, I'm trying to remember exactly how it goes, but the premise is that monsters are good guys, right? And 
children are bad guys, and children's laughter, right? The laughter of children. Well, the screams are good. Screams fuel like the life force of monster world, and laughter is like sucks it out of them. Is that right? Or just the absence, the absence of screams sucks it out of them, and um, it. The laughter's what? They don't know that the laughter was No, no, yeah, yeah. But the premise at the beginning is backwards. Everything is backwards, right? That's the premise to begin with. That monsters are good guys, children are bad guys, laughter is bad, screams are good, screams fuel the life force of, and it's completely backwards, and everybody knows it's backwards. No surprise at the end of the movie when they discover, ah, the way we've been thinking about life and like the substance of life is completely wrong, right? Do you have aha moments like that in your own life where it's not just a tweak, it's a we, we have been going about this all wrong. Um, I, I'm gonna, uh, maybe it's not that profound, but I do wanna suggest that there's something about the way we have thought about the life force that is the culture of the gathering of the church that's been pretty wrong. Um, not sinful wrong, just a little bit backwards in the way that we think about humanity, human life, and what it means to thrive as a church. Okay? So, just a couple of um, like stories or statements to set up the premise, and then I'll, I'll go into like what is the premise of this class. Okay, one. Um, uh, about a year ago, or more or less, I started a sermon by saying, I sometimes struggle with depression. Um, not I struggle with feeling sad or overwhelmed with life. No, I have this struggle um, that I go see a doctor about sometimes. And it is depression. And I can have absolutely no reason to be depressed. And it will hit me out of nowhere. And it can get fairly dark, fairly quickly, and I get depressed. And sometimes I need some medical help um, getting out of that. And I said that at the beginning of the sermon, and I said, no pressure here, but I'm gonna pray this morning for people who also struggle with that, and if you would like to, um, I don't remember if I asked people to stand, or I probably just said, just raise your hand, the people around you will lay a hand on you, and uh, uh, not a preacher count, more than half the people in the room raise their hand, more than half. And a whole lot of people came up to me afterwards and said, what? What would you imagine that they said? Uh, I was surprised by how many people raised their hand because I was one of them. What else? What's the matter with you? No, nobody said that. <laughs> You're so good looking. Why would you be? No, nobody said that either. I thought it was just me. I thought it was just me. Uh, there were a whole lot of people that said, no one has ever said that in our gathering. Now, that might not be true for your gathering, but in ours, no one has ever, at least they had never experienced it. Someone just kind of just talking about that as if, yep, that's one of the things that some of us struggle with, and you might be one of those people. 
right. Um, uh, several years ago, I got up to do a funeral. Man, I've done a lot of funerals. I know I only look 25, but I'm older than that. A whole lot of funerals. And I've never lost it in a funeral. And I got up to do the funeral of a woman who was kind of cantankerous. And, uh, but when we moved to Atlanta, my mother-in-law had just died. My kids had lost their Grammy. And we moved to Atlanta and this cantankerous woman took my two youngest kids in and was a grandmother to them. So much so that when just a day before she died, she was in her bed in her home and had not been um, awake had, and not had any conversations with people really. She'd like opened her eyes but not been alert. And my son Mason came into her room and she woke up and sat up in order to have a conversation with him before she died. And when I preached her funeral, I didn't just, you know, poetically cry. I couldn't do the funeral. Were you there, Corey, for that? I couldn't do the funeral. I, I, I uh, like, ugly cried, snot, couldn't get the words out. And um, you know what I said throughout that time? All of those cries? I kept apologizing. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't know what's, I don't know what's the matter with me. Maybe we're kind of like Monsters, Inc. You know, we got some ideas about how life works and what is the life force a little bit backwards. What's the matter with a society full of human beings who feel like they need to apologize for crying in public? At a funeral. Thank you. At a funeral. Um, okay, two more stories, and then we'll get into it. Um, I went to this little... Uh, mobile home out in rural Atlanta to meet with Rob and Tasha. Uh, both um, just out of jail had lost their child, at least for a time, because of their addictions and crimes. Both while in jail had decided it's it, we got to make a change. And um, they're Americans born into American culture. And so they thought, well, you know, how do you make a change? We should go to church, right? That's just kind of how they processed that. And so they made some effort. Rob, when he got out of prison, came to our church because he had a connection. And so here I was going out to their place. I'd never met Tasha, but she also was wanting to make a change. And um, I went into their little mobile home, and Rob said, well, she's in the back room. I didn't, I didn't know anything. And I sat at the kitchen table, and not exaggerating at all, um, This is Tasha came in like this. I'm sitting over here and she just came in like that and carried on a 20 to 30 minute conversation with me, just like that. Physically just could not look at me. Couldn't, couldn't like turn her shoulders and open herself to me because she was a sinner and I was a preacher. All right, one last story. Angel, how do you say Angel's last name? Geta. Angel was Caleb and Jerome's Uber driver over a year ago. You don't want to be Caleb and Jerome's Uber driver for multiple reasons. Um, and uh, they started talking to him about lots of things, and faith was one of those things. Over a year ago, Atlanta's a big city. Uh, a few Sundays ago, Angel decides his life is kind of messed up. 
his, his life, his person is bruised and wounded and broken and needs repair. And he decides, I got to make a change in my life. And I remember those guys, and I remember what church they were from. I'm going to go get baptized. And so he goes up to the church on a weekend, and it's Saturday. We don't, we're not there, but there are some people on the grounds. He talks to a person. He says, come on back Sunday, and, and we'll take care of you. And, and uh, he, so he, he, lots of different things happen on that Sunday morning, but he makes it and pulls into the parking lot. Uh, uh, Angel was our Uber driver on Tuesday on our way out here. And so he's recounting what happened to us. And he said, I pulled into the parking lot, and I sat there for a long time, and I thought, no way am I going in there. Why would somebody say that? Why would somebody say, uh, man, I've never heard anybody talk about depression in this church before. And why would somebody apologize for crying in front of other people at a funeral? And why would somebody not be willing to face a preacher who came into their home? And why would somebody so desperately need change in his life and sit in the parking lot of a church and be unwilling to go in? Because church is not safe. I think, I just had lunch with Randy Harris and we were talking about, I think that um, this is one of those ugly things that the church is just unwilling to face. That people, many, many people in our world don't think that church is a safe place. You might think that it's a safe place, um, but lots of people don't. And so I think that we should talk about that and talk about, um, well, why is that? And is there anything that we could do to start changing that? Um, that idea that this is not really a safe place if you have any kind of broken, it's not just sin, just any kind of depression is not sin. It's just a struggle. It's just a struggle. It's a sign of humanity. Crying at a funeral is not a sin. It's just a sign I'm a human being. And church for many people whether it is for you or not, is not considered a safe place. Um, and so at campus, we, have, we are far from perfect. We have a really um, knucklehead for a preacher, but we're working on this. We're taking this seriously. What does it look like to create a culture um, specifically about our gathering? Church is much more than the large gathering, but specifically about our gathering because of how people often think about um, faith and change and church. Um, what could we do differently um, to create, to shift the paradigm a bit and change it to where monsters aren't the good guys and children are the bad guys, right? Um, where church is a culture full of safety. All right, so um, I'm going to just read a couple of texts to you and talk about this a little bit. And my gift to you will be bad class, short class. How about that? But I say that every time, and it turns out to be bad class, long class. But it's good intentions. It's good intentions, all right? Okay, I'm going to read a passage that, that you know really well um, because it took John 3.16's place as the most well-known text in postmodern culture, which would be what? 
What? Judge not. That's absolutely correct. Matthew chapter 7. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Um, okay, so uh, this is just brief. I want to get into something a little bit, uh, spend a little bit more time in something else. But I just want to suggest that there's more than one way to read this word from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And I, I think that both are true and fair. And one way to read this word from Jesus is, hey, listen, um, you know, you're a human being, and you're not God, and, but you still got to deal with God. And the way that you deal with your fellow human beings is the way that God is going to deal with you. Jesus tells other parables that kind of lean into that. It's pretty uncomfortable for my generation and younger to talk about God or even about spirituality in that way. But it's also kind of hard to deny in Jesus' teachings that at least this is a good way to think about it, that, uh, you know, you owe more to God than other people owe to you, right? But another way to think about this teaching is equally true, I think, and that is that when you judge people harshly, you create culture. You create worlds. And you have to live in that world, right? So every time you feed or lean into or help assist harsh judgment, unfair judgment, unmerciful judgment of other human beings, you are helping to design and create a world that you have to live in. Right? You know the kind of person that doesn't like to live in a neighborhood because they don't like all the rules of the neighborhood? They want to, this might be some of you, they want to live in a house where they're not told what color they have to paint the house and what they can put in their yard. And a lot of the people that live in those kind of neighborhoods have a whole lot of stuff in their yard, right? But then when it comes time to sell that house, it's kind of, it's, there's like a cost that you pay, right? Because you're living in what you are creating. You're not isolated. You are now living in the world that you are helping to create. Um, so I, I speak often about my mother-in-law who passed away because she, she sort of made me the kind of preacher that I am just by sitting in the pews every Sunday because she was, she had a really broken life full of all kinds of guilt and shame and struggle. And once a month, every couple of weeks, she would call me or come by my office and say, I need you to give me the speech again. And I would give her the speech about what God was like and how much he loved her and that he knew more about her brokenness than she knew about her own brokenness and that he chose to love her anyway. And it often came down to two things. One, she struggled to believe that this was true about God. And two, even if she believed that this was true about God, she didn't believe it about you. She didn't think that human beings that went to church had the capacity to know about her truly and still love her. And when I would try to sort of counter that with, listen, I know that that's true about some people, that some people don't have that capacity, but a lot of people do. She would always respond, and I had no answer to this. She would respond with, listen, I hear what upsets them. And if that 
upsets them. Can you imagine how upset they would be if they knew about my abortion? If they knew about all the men I'd slept with? If they knew about what I had done to Crystal? Uh, we create worlds with our judgment. Our harsh. It's not just this sort of like this um, arbitrary command or this something that happens in a bubble and oops, I, I shouldn't have done that and I did and I'm going to try and do better. No, it's a, a whole culture creating activity. And so I'm, I'm claiming um, that one, if we, wanna, if we want to create, help create, counter create church culture in which people feel safe to be broken, we're going to have to say no to shallow, nonsensical complaints and judgment. And this takes courage and love. This very Sunday, uh, here's Angel and his family. His, his, his Angel was baptized one Sunday. The next Sunday, his wife and his 15-year-old daughter were baptized. They're coming in, and man, do they have a story to bring in full of brokenness and stuff that you don't do and you don't say in church. And I promise you, they are still wondering, are we completely safe here? And if they had been standing next to me when the elderly sister asked if during the more traditional service I would tuck my shirt in, and then in the less traditional service be okay with untucking it, that is no small thing. That criticism and judgment didn't happen in a vacuum. And instead of deflecting it, I should have said, you know, while I could handle those words from you, there are people in this space for whom that would be so harmful. Mm -hmm. Or what do you think's going on with you that you would care about something so small? Maybe that, maybe that would be a judgment. I don't know. <laughs> it's kind of hard to navigate it and not be judgy. Have you noticed that? <laughs> uh, Joyce taught me that... This teaching from Jesus is kind of a big deal. It's not a, a command and obedience issue. It is a culture-shaping issue. And it is one of a number of reasons why people don't feel safe with us. We, we know us, and so we feel like you should feel safe with us, but they know us too. They've heard us complain about far less and criticize far less than that. Okay, um, in Luke chapter 7, if I were Jim McGuigan, I would say, we're halfway through. You're doing so well. Yeah. Remember Jim McGuigan saying that all the time? It never really made me feel good. So. <laughs> okay, in Luke 7, so uh, this is the second part I want to talk about. Um, and I want to talk about some practicals that we've been kind of trying out at campus. In Luke 7, there's this story about Jesus going to have a meal with a Pharisee named Simon. Do you remember this story? Then Luke uh, has, um, in the Gospel of Luke and in Acts, he, he writes about the table or about uh, sharing bread together a lot. And um, uh, I personally think that you can't read the Gospel of Luke and then Acts and walk away with communion every Sunday. I just don't think that that's a fair reading. I think that you read Luke 
and you read Acts and you walk away with communion at every table. Everything is the communion of the Lord. And Sunday's great. It's the whole gathering of people. But Luke's tried to say something about the table and what Jesus, what Israel is to do at the table and what Jesus has come to do at the table and the significance of that. Jesus is at a table with a Pharisee. Anybody remember the Pharisee's treatment or response to Jesus? He is a poor host, right? He doesn't kiss him. He doesn't wash his feet. He, 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 he is snarky. He disobeys Matthew 7, even though there is no Matthew 7 at this point just yet. And um, his snarkiness kind of rises to the surface, especially when a particular woman who is unnamed comes in uninvited. She is the guest at the table. Jesus is the guest. The woman is the guest. And Simon is the host. And Simon is a particularly poor host. But Luke wants you to know that Israel's whole identity is to host the world at the table of the Lord. This is who they're supposed to be. They're supposed to host the world at the table. And they can't even host the Lord at the table of the Lord, at least not the religious um, leaders within Israel of Jesus' day. And so the woman comes in, and what do you know about the woman? She is a, in Simon's estimation, she's a sinful woman, and probably in her estimation too, by the way that she treats Jesus in chapter 7. Um, let's see. In verse 37, a woman in that town, uh, this is in 737, a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. That might be a hint as to what kind of sinful woman she was. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. And uh, there's a really, we won't read it all, but there's a really interesting dialogue between Jesus and Simon. Jesus thinks that, or Simon thinks that Jesus is not a prophet, because if he were a prophet, he would know who the woman was and that he shouldn't be letting her do that. And while he's thinking that, Jesus, the prophet, addresses what Simon is thinking. Maybe that's a prophetic moment, or maybe Simon is like the rest of us in that he can't hide his facial expressions, <laughs> right? And it's, his judginess and snarkiness is all over his body and his face. And so, but Jesus' essential rebuke of Simon was, you are a really poor host. You're not a good host. Hmm. The whole world thinks that our gatherings are unsafe. Jesus' primary rebuke, I'm going to let you make the connections yourself, of the Pharisee is, you're a really poor host. And then the story pivots for Luke like it always does. And the woman becomes the superb host of the table. This is like a parable for Jesus. It has this really surprising ending. How could the sinful woman who wasn't even invited to the party become the superb host? Well, she, she does so by lowering herself and in authenticity and vulnerability 
loving Jesus in that moment. And so I, I guess I'm suggesting last year and now this year, part two, we should be thinking about, okay, what does it look like, especially in our larger gatherings, to host well? And if the kingdom of God is sort of upside down from the kingdoms of this world, then is hosting upside down also? Um, and if this story is one of many possible models, then what does it look like to, in authenticity and vulnerability, love? Not in um, a position of power or strength, but in a position of what Randy talked about last night, good and evil runs through every heart. Okay, are you with me? So far, not saying anything earth-shattering, I know. It's, this is the best I've got, by the way. It doesn't get any better than this, sorry. Okay, so here's what I want to do. I'll spend just a few moments talking about like just some practicals. You could probably think of 50 more practical ways to do this, but here are some things that we are doing, trying to do, stumbling along with at campus, and honestly, um, I feel like the bulk of them have sort of been, God kind of started doing this and then we've plagiarized him, basically. Oh yeah, we've been doing this all along on purpose, right? But this is just sort of the things that have kind of evolved because God is at work in broken people um, to make campus, the culture of campus shift to becoming a place that is truly safe space. Um, so uh, I have a friend, Barb, and she is, a, um, a, an administrator in a network of ministries that oversees safe houses in Atlanta. Human trafficking is a, a big issue in Atlanta and she moved to Atlanta just to be involved in this kind of a work and so she oversees a couple of safe houses. Um, I've been to one of them, not, not both of them, one of them, it's an oasis. In the middle of Atlanta, you're driving down a highway and all of a sudden you, can't, you don't even know it's there and uh, you turn off and it's this oasis for these um, young, this one is particularly for young girls who have been trafficked. And um, I love her philosophy. We went in to do some work and uh, one, of our, one of our tasks was to tear up old flooring, to put new flooring down. And the old flooring we were tearing up was nicer than the flooring in my house. And I asked her, I was like, that's pretty nice flooring. And she said, yeah, but listen, these young girls have had nothing but the worst offered to them. And when we can, we're offering them nothing but the best. Mm -hmm. I love that. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's going to last in the long run, you know, but that's a great way to think about hosting these young ladies, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, but what makes the safe house a safe house is secrecy. Is what makes it a safe house, right? If you go there, you're, you're instructed to turn your phone off before you turn off the exit. You can't just spread the address around to other people. You have to have security clearance. People come and let you in. The, the, the residents are moved to another space. You never lay eyes on them, don't see them. They don't see you while you're there because a priority for these uh, oppressed and victimized young women is their security. 
and secrecy is connected to security, and it should be for them. But security and a sense of safety at church is not secrecy. This is an opposite value here. We have had the sense and therefore perpetuated an environment of unsafety because we valued individual secrecy. And if there was ever a hypocrite preaching about this, it's Dusty Rush. I am a private, I grew up in a preacher's home. I'm introverted people. We li- I was raised in a glass house and I don't want you to know anything about me. Secrecy is safety. But in kingdom community, secrecy is not safety. It might feel like safety for you, but it is therefore not safety for the community. Um, so our, our philosophy is that anything you can do within reason and in a healthy way that pushes back against the cultures of individualism and secrecy is a substantive way of building safety in church environment. It is, it's pushing back against the old and helping create new culture in which the angels of the world and the Joyces of the world could say, I feel safe in this community. Even just saying that, think about that for a minute, I feel safe. I think that most of us automatically think about secrecy, mm-hmm. like my secret is safe mm-hmm. with a few, right? So here are some things that we've done. One, this is because some of these are gonna be so obvious. We have stated this as a value. Uh, That's a good start. We value vulnerability and authenticity. We value it. We think that, how's our line go? This is um, unusual, how's it go? Because being real is rare and powerful. Because being real is rare and powerful in our culture. So we say it. When it happens, we say it again. Uh, It happens often in our gatherings, and we almost always affirm it as, yeah, that's that right there, that's what we believe in, what just happened. We value authenticity and vulnerability. Um, Okay, Uh, so I asked uh, to sort of kind of, it wasn't to kick this off because it was already happening, but to move it into high gear. Last year, I did something that I don't know if you could get away with. You're all in different contexts, but you could give it a try. I went to our elders and said, hey, we um, have been saying that we value vulnerability here, and I'm about to do a sermon series on valuing this and claiming that the world doesn't think that this is a safe space, and we want to make this a safe space. So Church, your authenticity is important for this church. And so what I need you guys to do is take turns on every Sunday of the series. One of you get up right before I preach and tell something that you didn't want everybody in the room to know. I don't know if you could get away with that at your church, but I promise you it would be culture shaping if you did. I'm lucky to have elders who didn't even second guess me. They said, okay. I had a few come to me afterwards and and say, well, like, can, can you kind of like help me out with this? Which was a good thing because sometimes our attempts at authenticity aren't really that great. They kind of, we still somehow come out the hero. 
We're looking for stories where you're not the hero here, right? And so um, our elders, here's the deal about um, vulnerability and authenticity that I found in the telling of those stories. It's really the small, mundane things that are the hardest to tell, right? Like one of the elders said, um, a year ago, I was without a job and I didn't want anybody to know about it. They just talked about this. Like, he didn't go rob a bank. But you know what, elder? That was a really shallow thing. You're a shepherd at this church, and you lost your job, and you didn't want anybody to know about it. Thank you for saying you are sometimes shallow. Right? Um, one of our elders who is highly esteemed in the community shared about his high school daughter running away from home. And, but here, I want you to hear me out on this. That wasn't the um, confession that his daughter ran away from home. The confession was that when my daughter ran away from home, my very first thought was not, I hope she's safe. My very first thought was, I hope nobody finds out. You know, so think about that for a minute. This is an esteemed member of the community, not just the church, but the community as a whole. And an elder standing before the church and saying, you know how you're all really shallow and broken in a million ways? Me too. And here's something that ran through my heart and my mind. And he risked, I know this firsthand, Caleb, I talked about earlier. When you are vulnerable and authentic, people will use it against you. There is no doubt. Like this is, this is cruciformity. I'm paying a price when I do this. I am deciding that even though there are people that will use this to harm me, I believe in the greater good for the wounded soul, right? I will become wounded if a wounded someone can become safe. So like, it's not like there's no risk here. And, and I, I'm, I'm, this is just a, you know, 45-minute class, I'm not suggesting that there aren't parameters to healthy sharing and safe places and unsafe places. I'm just saying that that's become a little bit of an excuse for us at times, and therefore our, the whole culture of who we are has become, oh, we're the unsafe people. Uh, so Sunday after Sunday, shepherds got up, right? And man, it, it shaped our culture. Simultaneously to that, and, and maybe a little bit before that, again, I don't know what kind of influence you have. You could just all move to Atlanta and come to Campus Church, and that would be awesome. <laughs> Buddy, it would be awesome if you did that. Um, at the same time, and actually a little bit before, we changed, the way, we changed the way that we think about and approach our Sunday communion. I have said I think that communion is what happens at every table that disciples gather around and it's to me it's really important to think that that's no minor shift it's an important um, change and way of thinking about living the cruciform life but there is substance to the whole whole body gathering together and practicing a ritual that's important for them that has story behind it and um, so we change some things about the way that we practice communion really we started changing them like eight years ago and slowly changed, you know. 
Um, but we came to this practice where oftentimes individuals or families would sit at a table and lead us into communion by telling story. Uh, story is also one of our one of our values. And so I would ask them, um, hey, here are some of the, like, here's kind of how the morning is going to work. Would you participate? And uh, if you would, then here's what I would like for you to do. Would you please tell us what God has been doing in your life? This will be our communion meditation for the day. And what happened was that um, people started telling stuff you're not supposed to tell in church. And the more that people did that, the more a culture, just as judgment creates its own culture that people have to live in, so storytelling about what God is doing. When you tell stories about what God is doing, you almost always have to include your brokenness. This is where God resides, in broken people. So if you're going to tell a story about what God's doing, you have to tell, uh, oh, it was something that I was unable to do or something he had to redeem or correct. And this became then um, part of the, the life of campus church, the telling of story around the table of the Lord, where the broken disciple is the host, right? Mm -hmm. It was ironic that some of my more traditional, loving yet traditional members would complain that we're not really having communion. Oh, you mean that time when we sit in absolute silence, block everyone else out, and remember? That communion? That's not really communing. It's what you do at home alone before you gather with the saints. Right? No, we are rehearsing the mighty deeds of God at the table of the Lord. Pretty sure this is communion. Right? Um, and, week seven, we are becoming healthy hosts of the table of the Lord. We are washing the feet of Jesus by telling the stories of our own brokenness and God's healing power in the world. This, this is what communion is about, right? You with me on that? I mean, it feels like Jerome would, would have thrown in an amen or something <laughs> along the line. Um, I remember in particular, there have been so many really amazing moments in that, just that simple question. I never, the church thinks that I have, directed that I have never once directed I've only asked that one question what is God doing in your life people think that I know their story and I'm asking them to tell a particular story and most of the time I'm shocked I don't know all of these stories about people we um, uh, this last year had a long-standing member he's a dentist in the community get up and sit at the table he knew that I didn't know because he said Dusty doesn't know what I'm about to say, which is terrifying words for a preacher, right? Even though you don't know. <laughs> Dusty doesn't know what I'm about to say. And he said, I've lost my faith. I've been an atheist for the last year, or I can't remember how long, and I'm just now coming back. And I'm wrestling with it, and I'm, I'm struggling with this God of the scriptures and the claims about God, and I'm, I'm just trying to focus on Jesus. This is, it's my saving grace. Well, I don't know what you would think as a preacher, but I was thinking, I am so glad to be at this church where something has happened. God has done something so that the culture of the church is so safe that a longstanding member could say, I might be an atheist. I'm not sure I'm wrestling with it. With no happy ending to the story just yet. Right? 
Um, okay, one, one more thing, and then I'm going to go back to Luke 7 real quick and let you out early. Bad class, short class. Um, we uh, uh, are also working on um, training now people uh, not I want to think about how I say this not how to tell their story I, I kind of hate that language honestly um, we're working on training people to know their story uh, interpret their story right and and uh, just as a little side a lot of time to go into it but um, I don't think that you can know your story outside of the God story. That's why that question is so important in the community. What's God doing in your world and in your life? Because your story is, well, what's God been doing all of this time? And it always, every time, right, Taylor? Every time leads to your brokenness. Every time. That sort of, like, people need help navigating and think, stepping outside of and looking back and saying, whoa, God has been doing these things and here's my brokenness and here's what God has done with that and here's his redemption and I think I think I'm I think I have a better sense when somebody asks me what's God been doing in your life I think I have a better sense for that uh, people in general are not self-aware if you were the only two people in the room who disagreed with me you're the least self-aware just as a little <laughs> warning there right human beings generally are not very self-aware and the ones that think that they are are usually the least right um, everybody who knows you can tell you something about you that you don't know about yourself that's just that's just what it means to be a human being so we're using i, I say we but caleb is our exec and he's kind of helped guide um campus through a ministry called unique starts with a y um, that has been oh man is so good in so many ways if you want to talk to him about it afterwards he's like 610 you'll find him um, but this has been substantive for us too because when we started leaning into vulnerability and sto storytelling um, you might guess that quite a number of people would come to me and say i, I don't really I don't really have anything to tell. And um, I don't know what they thought that was a confession of, like just a normal, healthy life. Boring. But it was a confession of the lack of self-awareness, <laughs> right? And it's okay, but we want to help you discern. Um, please don't ever say that in God's presence again because <laughs> you're kind of hinting that God hasn't done anything. And I assure you, God has been doing something in the world and in your life, and you have been broken. And he has repaired you, right? So there is something to tell. Okay, one last thing really quickly. Um, yeah, I will come to the prayer. Thanks. Two last things really quickly. Uh, so uh, Caleb and his wife, Addie, and Crystal and I were at this restaurant one night. It's been a little while. I just think about this this morning. And uh, we're at this restaurant. And the waiter comes up and he like he takes a like drink order and we never get it and he comes back to us a few minutes later the details are fuzzy but he starts to say something like uh, apology about not getting something and he just freezes and just stands there for an uncomfortable amount of time staring at us and what was happening was he was having a panic attack oh. and he was falling apart in front of us 
And I just want to tell you about what happened on our side. He's having a panic attack, and there's no safer table than our table to do that. We're going to love him. We're not going to criticize him. We're not going to ask for our money back. But there were some people at the table that were more safe than others. I wasn't one of those because I'm the professional pastor. So I'm thinking immediately, what are the wise and calm words that I could say to this young man to minister to him and help him miraculously out of this moment of crisis into victory and then have him do his testimonial next Sunday at church, right? <laughs> and so I'm, I'm thinking about what can I say that's the right thing that people need ministers to say. And Caleb and my wife, who are not the same temperament or personality, say, oh, I have panic attacks too. Well, <laughs> that's, that's a good thing to say. Oh, I have panic attacks too. Because what they have done in this moment is they've hosted well by becoming the guest, right? You're not the, it's not your house. It's not your table. You didn't invite everybody here. When you walk into the room, you're not the hero of the party. You're, if you want to be a good host in the kingdom of God, you're the humble guest. This is this Luke, the good host is the humble guest. Um, listen, we can't be good hosts if we're always the hosts. Right? You know what I mean by that? If it's always on your turf and it's always your table and you're always in charge and in command, then in the kingdom of God, that does not make for good hosts. The good host in the kingdom of God is the humble guest at the table. And this includes what happens on our turf in our gathering, and it especially includes leaving our turf and being broken in the world. You know, American Christians are obsessed with holding on to power. It's bothersome to me. I don't really care what your po politics are. Like, that's not our job, to hold on to power, to shape culture. This is not how the kingdom of God works. You shape culture by being the humble guest. You're not the Simons of the world. You're the simple woman, womans. You're the simple women of the world. This is, this is your task. To be good hosts is to be good guests. Okay. Oh, I was going to tell about Angel and Lanny, but I'm not going to. <laughs> you think I should? Yeah. No, I'm not going to. Um, okay, I want to read this one last prayer. I love this. This, by the way, Essential Mystic Prayers by Paraclete Press. It's really good. I do one a day and just kind of live in it for a day. Some of them are super weird, but most of them are really good. All right, so let me, let me close with this, with this prayer. I, I titled this, I wrote some notes on the top and wrote, A Truly Courageous Prayer. All right, this is from Evelyn Underhill. Give me, O Lord, I beseech you, courage to pray. For light and, in, and to endure the light here. I, I'm thinking about this prayer and thinking about the courage to be vulnerable, to step into light, 
to allow light to shine on us and through us in profound ways that we've mostly avoided. Um, courage to pray for light and to endure the light here. Where I am on this world of yours, which should reflect your beauty, but which we have spoiled and exploited. Cast your radiance on the dark places. Those crimes and stupidities I like to ignore and gloss over. She's talking about herself here, not about, you know, those out there. Show up my pretensions, my poor little claims and achievements. That, that uh, line, show up my pretensions, last year we started the class with Ananias and Sapphira, and I made the claim that you've got Luke who embraces everybody at the table of the Lord, everybody's welcome at the table of the Lord, on and on and on, and then you get to Luke 5, and God kills people at the table of the Lord. And my claim is that the only people not welcome at the table of the Lord are fakers. <laughs> That this disrupts and destroys what the kingdom of God is trying to do in the world. And God will not tolerate it. You can be broken and wounded and sinful. You can bring it all to the table of the Lord. Just don't pretend like you're not that. Or you destroy culture. You destroy kingdom culture. Right? Um, so she writes, uh, show up my pretensions. That is a courageous prayer. Show up my pretensions my poor little claims and achievements, my childish assumptions of importance, my mock heroism. Take me out of the confused half-light in which I live. Enter and irradiate every situation and every relationship. Show me my opportunities, the raw material of love, of sacrifice, of holiness, lying at my feet disguised under homely appearance and only seen as it truly is in your light. That's good, isn't it? Let me pray for us and then we'll be done. God, we confess that um, sometimes vulnerability for the sake of others is too great a cost for us. And we kind of just want to hide and, or or present ourselves as something other, both as individuals and communities. But we believe that the Spirit of God invites us to host as humble guests. And so we join Evelyn in this courageous prayer, asking that your light would shine on us and through us, revealing our pretensions, our mock heroism, and revealing our brokenness in our woundedness, and the grandeur of your repair. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. You're out of here five minutes early. You're welcome. <laughs>